Dr. Spiker, Dr. Spiker, I, I need help. I think my sister might be possessed by a demon. Oh, really? Okay, so what's what's going on that would make you think that, you're, that your sister is possessed? Well, she's been twisting her body into these unnatural contortions, and she seems to have a superhuman strength, and she's speaking in languages. I, I don't know what they are, and I don't know how she knows them. Hmm. Does she not study language in school? No. Okay, okay. This sounds very familiar, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Does she lead a wicked life? She just started to recently, which is so strange for her, and she started being blasphemous and just hurling random insults. Does she hurl up random objects? Does she vomit strange things? Yes! I just noticed this for the first time today. Okay, and I, this is a really probably the most important question that I have for you. Can you confirm at all that she has made a pact with the devil? Is that bad? That leads me to two conclusions. Either she's a witch, or she's possessed. <gasps> Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be Father Abraham, your host. And I will be, uh, I don't know, untrained and completely scared Reverend Shane. <laughs> Excellent. And Shane, your, your mother, mother sews socks that smell. <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite edits of the Exorcist movie when it's on cable access. When you watch like, I don't know, FX and they have snakes on a plane and they say, I'm tired of these monkey flipping snakes on this mother father plane and you're like that's yeah that's pretty good like so, so your mother so snocks that smell makes me laugh every time i hear it we covered this in the the euphemisms episode i believe <laughs> yes we did i do believe we touched on that it was like it was a lead-in that's all it's we, we just create through lines across all of our episodes into these things unknowingly it is the mcu of podcasts <laughs> yeah we, we mentioned one infinity stone 20 movies earlier and then here we are with the infinity gauntlet that's right anyway this is another Halloween episode. We've got a couple left. Yeah, we love the spooky stuff. And I was really excited to put this one together because I think that exorcisms are very just interesting in general, just the thought process behind them and how, I guess, how one comes to make the decision that an exorcism is necessary versus like medical treatment. I don't know how you get there. And I guess maybe we're going to kind of try to get into that a little bit, but... I don't personally see myself undertaking the psychological gymnastics that it would take for me to make that decision. That's fair. <laughs> and I think one thing getting into this is in most circumstances, when you're looking at movies, which is, I think, the primary way that most people have ever encountered the idea of exorcisms, one in particular, The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the way they're usually depicted is you often have some kind of skeptic or some critic who's saying, this is nonsense, this isn't real, I don't believe you, and they're always wrong, invariably. Even in the last exorcism, where it's set up, not to give too much away, but it's it starts this way, so I'm hopefully not spoiling it too much, but it essentially starts with the idea that it's a hoax, but then eventually moves away from that. And so I think it's hard because we're sort of in the position that we're always, the, the skeptic's position the looking at what's really going on here is always wrong in the media. And yet when we really do dig into the science here, 
we should we're shown that the skeptical position is in fact the correct one to have but it would make for a good movie <laughs> exactly like if jurassic park started with somebody going this is a bad idea and everybody went yeah i guess you're right like let's be skeptical about it and they didn't create dinosaurs then you wouldn't have this multi-billion dollar franchise so i've seen signs to say like every disaster movie starts with somebody not listening to a scientist i think that you could probably say the same thing with exorcisms like most of the time it's an issue with somebody not listening to a scientist somewhere and then they lead down this kind of interesting alternate medicine path that doesn't always work out for folks as we'll see when we kind of go over this okay so today we're going to ask the questions what is an exorcism why were they quote unquote necessary how have exorcisms been used in human history no one can see the air quotes i'm doing i don't know why i bothered with them (laughs) and and what is the impact of an exorcism on a human being when it is being performed so this is Maybe more complex than it might seem at first blush, and it's actually fairly straightforward as well. So I'm excited to really dig into this. When I was putting notes together, like one of my favorite things was looking at like I'm big on instructions for things. Like I like to see that there's like an instruction and a pathway and like a step by step process. And it was really nice to see that they actually kind of did this with exorcisms. Wow. Now, keep in mind the research that we're doing, like I didn't find a lot on like more specific examples because it is kind of a protected practice and folks that are trained to do exorcisms and all that tend to keep that pretty secretive for the most part. But there are some folks out there who kind of discussed what an exorcism is and kind of in the various processes by which somebody might go through actually performing an exorcism. Now, a quick disclaimer, do not perform an exorcism. Just don't do it. That's really all I could say here. You'll see when we get into like the case studies that we cover, it's not great for folks. So maybe just avoid them at all costs and maybe seek medical help if you think that somebody is in danger. Definitely second that and agree with it. And you were talking about when we're going to get into the sort of steps of how to do this. But the thing that immediately popped into my, my mind is imagining this like Lego instructions where you just have pictures <laughs> It just has one, and then it has, you know, the different steps of performing an exorcism, and these sort of cartoonish pictures. Yeah. And that seems ridiculous enough to be comedic to me, but... It's good stuff. Shall we get into the background here for doing exorcisms? Yeah, let's do it. So, the word exorcism is derived from the Greek word for oath, or exousia, and it really ultimately comes down to it's it's a, a religious or a spiritual practice of giving a demon an eviction notice for the vessel they are occupying. That's pretty much the best way we could describe it. What ends up happening is somebody is possessed by a demon and then a, a reverend or a priest or somebody shows up, a father, you know, whatever nomenclature you want to use, they show up and they say, you got to go. And they perform all these rites and rituals around exercising the demon from the human host that the demon has possessed. Get your stuff out of this place by the end of the week. I mean, at least they don't like staple a notice to the person. <laughs> they usually ask nicely. Oh, yeah. Well, I think feel like they scream at them, but... Yeah, I mean, they do eventually. They do get to that point. And they throw water at them and stuff. No nasty notes that we've seen so far. So, with these exorcisms, it occurs when the person is, of course, thought to be possessed by a demon, which seems fairly straightforward. And to remove it, you must do so spiritually because that's how a demon is possessing one person. So you can't just, you know, get out your scalpel and surgically remove it. It's got to be through a spiritual route. And a spiritual route is basically a language route, really, if we look at it and if we think about it. What we mean by spiritual includes, and we'll talk about all the different steps here, but we are trying to interact with this demon with language. So we're essentially imbuing language with these magical properties. 
it's pretty interesting to see. And, and most people have probably seen some kind of like filmed version of this where somebody is in the room saying holy rites, using relics and all these kinds of things to exercise the demon. So my question at this point in time is when we start talking about exorcisms, how do you know somebody's actually possessed by a demon? And here are a couple things that you might notice, especially when we kind of covered it in the beginning of the episode. The first one is major personality changes. So you might see somebody kind of shift and change what they're doing, but then they might also have unnatural contortions. So, I mean, if you go to Cirque du Soleil, you can't really just point your finger and say that person's possessed. But if you somebody maybe like me who has no flexibility, if I start doing weird things with my body, you might be concerned. Of course, you're going to expect superhuman strength. Uh, if you try to approach them, they're going to kick or push you and you go flying across the room as if hit by a tractor. I wanted to pick tractor. That's a really slow vehicle <laughs> as if hit by the Hulk. <laughs> and then, of course, there's speaking in other languages, particularly speaking in tongues or maybe some kind of Latin is common. Yeah. And then you also might see some wounds that might appear and disappear quickly, like they show up and they go away just as quickly as they appeared. But also the folks that are possessed might engage in insults. So I imagine that like some comedians might be at one point in time might have been possessed <laughs> blasphemies and also leading a wicked life could contribute to that. Do insults include things about your mother smelling socks that smell? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I imagine that's where they're like, oh, oh, she's definitely possessed. She talked trash about my mom. Of course, there's some general deviancy of living outside the rules of society. So if you have piercings and tattoos and listen to metal music and wear band shirts, then you're probably possessed by a demon. Making a pact with the devil, that one seems like pretty solid <laughs> Yeah, pretty solidly on the list of like you've you've done messed up now, and then of course being tired of living, I guess would be another one. Also, you might vomit strange objects like things that you should be vomiting. Like you might vomit like pieces of things, or you know, just strange just strange objects like something that you shouldn't be vomiting. You might also be uncomfortable, ugly, and violent. I'm generally uncomfortable and ugly, so maybe I'm two-thirds possessed. And then making sounds like an animal or movements like an animal. So like somebody who is really interested, like maybe furries could be considered possessed. I don't know. I mean, because I feel like these criterion aren't maybe super clear. Some of these things might even be a little bit exaggerated when we start talking about these symptoms of being possessed. And so while some of these things might be kind of exaggerated, some of these things might be cultural norms, other ones might just be considered disrespectful to people of faith. And so when they would perform these exorcisms, it was a result of kind of a, all of those things together. They would, they would select somebody who was identified as possessed because maybe they weren't jiving with the current cultural practices. Yeah. Leading a wicked life might be uh if we're thinking back to who was it, Graham and his his purity is like enjoying your food, wearing comfortable clothes. Yeah. Reading a book that you like. All of these would be leading a, like, a wicked life. So it just depends on your criterion there. Right. It gets a little bit fishy. It gets a little bit it gets a little bit muddy when it comes to this stuff. So especially like maybe at the time that exorcisms were maybe a little bit more pervasive in culture. So. Sure. With all this being said, I think there is a question about how, how do we conduct this? Right. So we know exorcisms have exist. We know people can get possessed if they're, you know, just uncomfortable. But I guess the idea is, you know, when somebody is identified as possessed, where do we go from there and how do we conduct an exorcism? Okay. So we've observed the criteria. Your person that you're concerned about is doing all these evil things. They're being insulting, blasphemous, leading a wicked life, have made a pact with the devil, those sorts of things. and. So what you what do you do? You're gonna go over. You're gonna pick. You're gonna pull off of your shelf your big leather bound book 
that is the Bible. You're going to open it up to the Lego instructions <laughs> that have pictures and, and cartoonish form about what to do. And let's go through the steps. <laughs> I love that. The Lego instructions of exorcisms. So these Lego instructions, they tend to be, you know, we, when we say there's steps for these exorcisms and all that, it's not just any ritual. It's going to be a very particular set of things, but no two exorcisms are the same. So even though we're going to talk about these stages, you'll find that some of the cases that we cover are going to have different experiences and different approaches to addressing the concerns because the concerns present and the presenting issues are a little bit different. So let's talk about stage one. Stage one is called the presence. And basically all parties involved in exercising the demon become aware of the entity. So that means that family members, that means that pastors and folks that are going to perform the exorcism, everybody is aware. And that's, and that's the first stage is becoming aware that the demon is, it has possessed the person. Right. And so stage two, we get to pretense. This is put on Lego head and spin it around. <laughs> and this is the stage where the exorcist determines who the demon is. Very important. You'll notice in many movies is you've got to know their name. The demon will likely play the victim, or try to convince parties that they are in fact the same as their victim. And this is also the stage where the exorcist team names the demon, usually by extracting that information from somewhere. I love the idea of this. Like I was thinking about this. It's like, so let's go ahead and backtrack for a second, because at that point in time, the exorcism team has to have either a knowledge of like naming conventions for demons from hell or they just name the demon. They just decide on a name. Like, could you imagine walking in being like, I've pinpointed who you are, Jordan. <laughs> you are the demon possessing this person and we are going to exercise you. Like, I just don't know. Like, like, where do they get the name from? It's always really interesting to me. Right. Stage three is called the break point. And basically the demon gives up and begins trying to attack those involved in the process. And this is this depiction is what you'll see in a lot of exorcism movies, like where it's like the break point is where the demon starts lashing out. They start hurting the vessel. They start hurting all the people around them. They start kind of like throwing insults and stuff like that. And the demon begins to speak of the possessed in the third person instead of the first person. It's no longer, I don't want you here. I want you to leave. It's Jordan doesn't want you here. Jordan wants you to go away, da 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 da, da something along those lines. So that's where you start kind of seeing a change in the language around this. Now, stage four is the voice. And this is a singing competition where the demon is going <laughs> to try and outsing its other <laughs> demon competitors hopefully blake shelton picks them yes exactly right the next major country star that's where country <laughs> comes from we've solved it we've did it there you go like what a cool side effect of doing an, an episode on exorcisms as <laughs> <laughs> we solved how the voice came to be yeah, that's it as demon possessions they're more real than i thought so the the voice usually changes in voice so you have your your little girl who's suddenly starts speaking like this and so the voice becomes this humanly distressing babble. And in order to proceed through the rest of the ritual, the demon must be silenced, preferably with a pillow or, you know, a stern talking to. Lectures usually help here. So <laughs> that should be stage four, the lecture. So stage five is called the clash. And it's not just the band that put out the great London calling. What we're talking about here is that epic battle in which the exorcist and the demon begin to collide. This is when you, you see that in all the movies, when the, the exorcist or the, the person performing the ritual is screaming at the top of their lungs and wind is whipping around the room and, and the demon is screaming and yelling and throwing insults and all, this is when it comes to a head, right? And sometimes folks report that there is a change in the environment. Sometimes there's this idea of there kind of a, a unique pressure in the room where the exorcism is being conducted. And that pressure is described as both being spiritual and physical due to the collision with the will of the kingdom. So you'll hear there's a lot of really kind of, I don't want to say exaggerated, but definitely having that kind of like 
that really intense language related to like religion and spirituality and kind of all the stuff that you see, like the old English type of stuff, like a lot of metaphors, a lot of decorated language, I guess, maybe a way to describe it. And finally, stage six, 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 <laughs> just kidding. Just say, <laughs> which is the expulsion. This is the part that I feel like we rarely see in movies. If I feel like exorcisms often fail, but if you're in maybe Constantine, you're, you're going to get a giant mirror and use a mirror to suck the demon out. Just kidding. In this case, the demon loses the battle. The victim regains control of their body and the victim may or may not remember some or all of the event. Right. So essentially at that point in time, the exorcism is successful. However, a lot of times you don't hear reports of successful exorcisms. You hear the reports of the ones that don't go well. We're going to cover one that is a successful one, but there are some that's kind of like, it's really interesting to see kind of where this goes. Now, let's go ahead and start with the case of Roland Doe. So we don't know this person's name, but this person, Roland, went through a series of exorcisms that were conducted in the late 1940s. At a time where the world was already struggling with the horrors of World War II, now exorcisms were not that much of a stretch. I mean, you had the Nazis that were kind of working and dabbling in like some esoteric type of things. Like, just all kinds of stuff was going on at the time. Like, nobody can make sense of the world. Kind of like today. This is a real story, right? Yeah, this is a real story. Yeah, this is based on a real thing. So they kept the person's name anonymous, but this was a real exorcism. So it was reported that this 14-year-old child was possessed with nearly 48 people witnessing symptoms of a demonic possession. So they had a a group of people that were saying this person is definitely possessed. He was just drunk. (laughs) During the exorcism, it was alleged that Roland broke free and used a bedspring to attack the priest who was conducting the exorcism rites that we've been describing. And during one of the next attempts at exercising the demon, which took place in a psychiatric care facility at the time, Father Walter Holleran, the priest conducting the rites, noted that the words evil and hell began to appear along the teen's body and then would vanish. And Holleran also had his nose broken during the entire rite. Got that superhuman strength going on. Do you think that he just started saying that because he's like, this kid broke my nose. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, I don't like this kid. Now he's become my mortal enemy because he broke my nose. Like maybe those words didn't show up until after he had the injury. I question pretty much everything that has been reported so far. (laughs) Well, and I think here's an important factor that we're going to talk about is at the end of the day, like this was taking place in a psychiatric care facility. So like in the 1940s, we know that like nobody really knew anything about mental health or anything like that. We were still kind of on the cusp of discovering anything about this. So. It makes sense that an exorcism would show up around this time because that's the really the only way anybody knew how to treat these types of things if you would call this a treatment. You know, this case was unique in that a child the child was never revealed, and so you can't confirm anything, right? So like this was an anonymous person in a psychiatric facility. We can never confirm that this ever went anyway. And you know, it, it sounds like Father Walter Holleran maybe used this story as a way to bolster his credibility within the church. Who knows? But ultimately there were some discrepancies in the story that came out. Like including where the rites took place, who was involved, and some of the symptoms that Father Halloran had described. This is like the bass fisherman of exorcisms. One time I caught a demon that was this big, but it got, it got away. Right, and I imagine that there's like some clout that goes along with being a successful exorcist, right? Like you would imagine like if you're a priest or a, a person of the clergy, you would want to be able to demonstrate to your people, your followers, that you can do these things. And so this is a really great story to say like, hey, 50 people saw this going on and I, I saved this kid. Okay, so we have another story. Again, we're in the we're sort of the real life examples of these things having happened because exorcisms actually happen with or have happened with some amount of regularity. So there are probably thousands of cases of these things being performed in some capacity. 
So the next one we'll talk about is Anna Eklund, real name Emma Schmidt. So we have the pseudonym Anna Eklund, or maybe that was the, the demon's name. And in this case, Anna was reportedly possessed multiple times over several decades. And a final exorcism was conducted between August 18th and December 23rd in the year 1928. So this is before the Roland Doe case. And at the time, you might think that this was a little girl because it seems like this often happens with little girls, but she was 46. And it was reported that Anna experienced symptoms of possession beginning around the age of 14. She specifically noted that she was possessed by Judas Iscariot and her own father. Could you imagine that? Like, think about that for a second, that you're telling people that you're possessed and typically you're being possessed by a demon, but your father is a demon? No. <laughs> you, you can't imagine. Okay. All right. I can't. <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm trying to put myself in these, in, the, in these people's shoes and I'm like, I just can't. So anyway, Anna has been reporting to be possessed all these times, but the final exorcism that Anna took part in was conducted by a father, Theophilus Reisinger. Okay, which is a, a heck of a name. Now, what makes this particular case unique, though, when we start talking about this, is the idea that uh, it's one of the first thoroughly documented examples of possession and exorcism to such a degree that it was included in Time magazine. So it was actually reported in fairly widespread publications to kind of highlight the severity of this case. Okay, so during Anna's possession, she was reported to hiss like a cat, which is, I mean, weird, but maybe not demonic in my opinion. And would regularly refuse food, which would result in significant emaciation. So apparently the demon was not also feeding her. <laughs> and in Anna's case, her exorcism was supposedly successful. And again, she would go on to live until 1941, only exhibiting mild symptoms of demonic possession. <laughs> only mild symptoms <laughs> until the time of her death. It's like she's just shopping at a grocery store and all of a sudden floats into the air and eyes turn red and blood rains in the ceiling. And then she's like, I'm good, guys. Sorry. They're just flare-ups happen now and again. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like a demonic sneeze. Achoo! <laughs> Achoo! And then she just starts banging her head like a Norwegian black metal. Like she starts painting. She's just like every now and again you find her with corpse paint on and she's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's just a symptom. You know, I really, I really <laughs> like Berserker. There's a point to take out of that. So mild symptoms, right? So what are mild symptoms of demonic possession? You know, throwing insults at people, you know, like just kind of speaking funny or like speaking in, in a different light. Like these mild symptoms I would think would show up that would be like maybe symptoms of mental health challenges, right? Like that's to, to me, it sounds like that's what, what kind of comes up, but and you'll see, too, like when we start talking about the next one, that these challenges are sometimes really severe. So the next one is probably one of the most famous cases of exorcisms and is the exorcism of Annalise Michael. And actually, there was a movie made about the story of Annalise. It was called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Did you ever see that? I did. I was actually totally going to guess that's who that was. I found that movie to be kind of dull and not my favorite exorcism movie. But I did see it, yes. No, definitely not. Well, and I think that's the only movie I've ever seen that had Dexter's sister, the sister from Dexter in it. Like, I've never seen her in anything else other than Dexter in that movie. Jennifer Carpenter? She's been in lots of stuff. Didn't you see um, Quarantine? Nope, never saw it. Oh, that is... Apparently, it's an adaptation of a Spanish film, but it, Quarantine is a really, really good horror movie. I would highly recommend it. Okay, I'm going to add it to my list. Yeah, she's been in lots of stuff. And made recommendations already. Yeah. Okay, I mean... Good for her. I, I like her. I mean, I thought that she was good in it, but it just, it was like, kind of like, it didn't really pan out. So anyway, you know, when we talk about Annalise Michael, she was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, which might explain some of the symptoms of like convulsions and unresponsiveness that are often reported in 
possessions. You might see something like that. And maybe because people didn't understand that at the time, that is possibly a presenting concern that comes with possessions. But she was diagnosed with this. And this is important to know as we go through the rest of her examples. And so at the age of 16, she suffered from a severe seizure, which is likely to happen when someone has epilepsy. And this was quickly followed with a diagnosis of depression. And her family then sought treatment for her psychiatric concerns. And around the age 20, she began to respond aggressively to religious artifacts. And despite treatment, her condition continued to worsen. Ultimately, she was not responsive to additional treatments. And her family determined that the most likely cause of this was a demonic possession. I don't know. I mean, I feel like if my parents at the time when I was a teenager with my very like outspoken and very radical views of things, I was responding pretty aggressively to religious artifacts, not like hissing, but definitely would be like, <laughs> no, I don't like it. You know, and I would like, you know, I was just a punk kid being like, Ugh. like, I think that if my parents were less open minded, then I might have been a victim of an exorcism. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, there's there's a little teenage rebellion going on and they're like, they're possessed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just thinking of all the bands I listened to, it's like they were burning down churches in Europe. So like, are they possessed? That's pretty aggressive. That's an aggressive response to religious artifacts. I was skateboarding and listening and playing in rock bands and and watching R-rated movies. I was probably possessed. It's the lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the only reasonable explanation. Yeah. So... Once the family kind of sought this treatment and determined that it wasn't working or determined that it wasn't working fast enough or whatever, they were able to convince the Catholic Church to perform requested exorcisms. And the rites began and continued for a, a seriously extensive period of time. During the time that she was receiving these exorcisms, she actually received 67 separate exorcism rites. And during this time that she was receiving all of these procedures and all of these performances, doctors were refused during this treatment, during this time. So she was getting these exorcisms without medical attention, without medical overview. And, you know, you're talking about somebody who has severe seizure disorders and maybe some other things that are going along with this. And this is particularly dangerous thinking about the amount of physical contact and violence and aggression that might occur and the fact that you have people who are refusing food. And to that point, ultimately, Annalise died as a result of malnourishment and dehydration. Her parents and the two priests who were conducting the exorcisms were then found guilty of negligent homicide in this case because they essentially allowed her to die from these things. This is kind of one of those turning points where it's like exorcisms seem fun for scary movies and they seem pretty interesting. And we've kind of made like, you know, we've kind of poked fun at this, but like. When it is applied in a way that it is designed to be an official treatment for somebody who is suffering from some pretty significant ailments, you see here that it can cost somebody their lives. And, you know, these are older stories like we've talked about, like the 40s and 50s and even through the 60s. But in 2003, an eight year old autistic boy in Milwaukee was killed during an exorcism. Right. And so you'll still see that this is as soon as 2003 that exorcisms were still occurring. And here's essentially what happened. The boy was wrapped in sheets for over an hour before the priest noticed that the child was unresponsive. And in response to the incident, the priest was quoted as saying, quote, we were asking God to take the spirit that was tormenting this little boy to death. We were praying that hard, but not to kill. So the fact is, at the end of the day, that priest was responsible for this person's death as a part of a religious rite and not as part of a formal treatment. 
like I understand this kind of took a dark turn really quickly, but it's important to note that when people are approaching these types of pseudoscientific or these approaches to presenting concerns, significant concerns, that medical model has got to be there as a stopgap to be able to protect these folks. Some real quick numbers I think might be interesting. I was we were kind of interested in in knowing how widespread of a practice this is and and how often it has occurred and continues to occur. And as I had mentioned earlier, that I sort of guesstimated that there were maybe thousands that have taken place. That actually might be a conservative number. I found an article that was published in January of this year that was saying that in the 21st century, so since the year 2000, there has been an increase in the rate of exorcisms up to as many as 175 per year in some cases. So we're getting up into the hundreds of exorcisms being performed per year. And then that's after you know the heyday of exorcisms in the early 19th century. And actually, exorcisms, the tradition, based on this article that I found, seems to go back about as far as many practices in Christianity. Which brings me to the second point, which was how widespread of a practice this seems to be. And although I do believe there are other religions that have some form of rights to extract evil, this seems to be uniquely Christian. As far as what I've been able to find in my research on this, at least it seems to be largely dominated by practice from people who are largely, mostly Catholic, but there are other Christian traditions as well that seem to embrace and practice this idea of exorcism. So I was a little surprised to see numbers as high as those. And I also expected to find more religions that practice this. I'm pretty sure that they are out there. I just didn't, I didn't come across any explicitly that I could name in this conversation. But it seems like the dominant group here seems to be in the Christian tradition and going back really far in time. Yeah. And the examples that we used in, in kind of the process, like when we talked about the presence and the and the break point and all that, that's all specific to Catholic exorcisms and the rites that are adopted by the Catholic Church, not necessarily Hinduism or Judaism or even Buddhism, like because there are mentions of things like this in those other religions. But the kind of what we've been talking about and, and specifically the case examples that we've been talking about are almost entirely Catholic, if not Christian, just kind of within that realm. They don't fall in any other sort of like spiritual domain. Yep. The thing we want to end with, of course, is the actual science about this. So what do we actually know about exorcisms and what's really going on here? Because I think that we all understand that this is not an actual demonic possession. You and I, I mean, and probably most of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, it's not a huge leap in logic to assume that many of the ailments that are being discussed here or any of the processes that are occurring here are some kind of undiagnosed psychiatric disorder or some kind of medical disorder that's being untreated or going under the radar. So I feel like that's not a huge leap. But the other part of it, too, is that there's a lot of the stuff that we discussed in the criterion for being diagnosed are just socially unacceptable behaviors, right? Being rude to folks, talking poorly against the church. Those are all historically behaviors and responses that have been punished by large organizations. So to include that in the criterion for possession makes sense. Okay. So if this person is not adhering to the the codes and the rights and the rituals of a large governing organized religion that is in control of, you know, how society governs rules and laws, then of course that person is either a witch or they're possessed or something along those lines. They're identified as an enemy of the state, an enemy of the church, and it becomes a larger problem. And there's historical precedent there. So that's not even coming from a space of there's probably something undiagnosed there. There are plenty of examples throughout history where religious powers, and these are obviously bastardized versions of what the teaching should be, but 
these powers that deem certain behaviors inappropriate, creating harsh punishments for those said behaviors, and they are working to suppress those behaviors. Because I can't imagine that anybody wants to be identified as possessed. Like, nobody wants to be, like, a target of the church for exorcisms by being possessed. I mean, maybe it's like a gimmick or a troll, but otherwise I agree with you, yes. Ultimately, in the cases that we mentioned above, there are scientific roots. We did talk about like diagnoses with the temporal epilepsy. We've talked about at the time that these were occurring, there were other diagnoses that could have been identified, but they weren't because the science just simply wasn't there. And in the case of the Milwaukee boy in 2003, he had a diagnosis of autism and he was going to get exorcisms as treatment for the challenging behaviors that he was experiencing. So we know that there are other ways to do this. It's not that that was, it's it's kind of like an unknown thing we're trying to explore. So, you know, there are those scientific roots. And ultimately what we're finding is that in all of those stories, except for the Roland Doe example, which, you know, he went on to live a normal life, but we couldn't confirm that. In all these situations, none of them were effective, right? So you saw with Emma, you saw that there were still mild symptoms of demonic possession. You saw with Annalise, she passed away from medical issues that were related to that. So to be fair, I mean, when you start looking at this, there were doctors out there that were treating hysteria by giving female patients orgasms, you know? So we have come a long way in understanding the science that at the time this was happening, there weren't that there wasn't that much to know, but today we know better. And so it's a shame that we're seeing this happen as much as we are. Now, there's a few more points that I think are worth bringing up in terms of understanding what might be going on here. And one of them is that there is some controversy here because there there were people who were exorcists for hire, essentially. And sometimes they weren't even affiliated with the Catholic Church, although the Catholic Church also did could make money doing these. And so a good general principle that you can adhere to is sometimes is follow the money, you know? And in this case, there were these people who were, as I said, they were exorcists for hire. And so there was a profit to be made by performing these exorcisms, which meant that they were going to see exorcisms everywhere. It didn't even have to be odd behavior at that point. And as long as they could convince you that there was a demon to be exercised, then they could, they would go in and perform their quote unquote service and then charge the family for it. And that became a business model. And so it's not surprising, really, that then you would see quite a few of these occurring and that people would be making those claims. And the other one, going back to the point that you made about those other diagnoses, one example of this that was fairly common was before people understood Tourette syndrome, as you'd get people who were suddenly spouting and shouting these these phrases, these making these sounds, they seemed like they couldn't control themselves. And without having an understanding of that and really not having any reason to think that there was something that was physically wrong with that person or going on or something that was different about how their brain worked, then going to spiritual or demonic possession seemed like the most, (laughs) I guess, to them, the most reasonable explanation for why that person seemed to be out of control with what they were seeing and doing. And, And that person might have felt that too. You know, They're like, I don't know why I'm saying these things. I don't know why I feel like I can't control this. And it seems like it's got, it's got to be a demon. Like what else could it be? And as psychology, psychiatry evolved, that became something that was more recognized, but then it had a lot of history to try and contend with, where you had people saying, like, you're saying that this is something going on with their brain, we're saying that's dumb, it's got to be a demon. And so it's just something to consider. And then I did find some more information that also Hinduism and Islam and Judaism all have versions of something that correlate with the idea of exorcisms. Again, just getting into sort of what's going on with the the science here. One last point to sort of touch on in the 
the discussion here about like how to look at this in terms of science, because I think I think there's plenty. I think logically the idea of exorcisms is incoherent. I think scientifically we have a lot of better explanations for things that are going on. And because we have those better explanations, we also have better treatments so we can help people who engage in these behaviors that seem like they would otherwise be classified as possessions and they're not. And we can provide treatment and then they go away with actual treatment and not by killing the person who's engaging, who's demonstrating those types of behaviors. And the other thing here is there is the sort of a sensationalism about all of this. So it's been portrayed in these movies. It's been talked about. It's It's been made the sort of thing that grabs people's attention. So the idea that there is something sort of, I don't know to say mundane, but it's not as captivating to have a, a simple explanation about something that happened that seemed extraordinary. And usually there is a simple explanation. And so it's probably more fun as well as more, I guess, engaging to entertain the idea that exorcisms are a thing that should happen. And I also want to make sure we go after this sort of middle of the road fallacy that often happens is the idea that some people might say, well, maybe exorcisms or claims about exorcisms aren't completely right, but like on the other hand, you have people who are claiming that they're never right. Maybe it's the case that sometimes there are demonic possessions and exorcisms are needed. And that that is a logical fallacy. Just because you have two extremes doesn't mean that the middle of those two extremes is the right place to be. I think we're in a we're safely in the camp of demonic possessions are not real, exorcisms do not work. Yes, absolutely. I would one hundred percent agree with that statement. We know that it is not a thing. Cool. I think that brings us to the end of our discussion on exorcisms so shall we just sort of wrap this up with some take-home points yeah so i think my first primary major take-home point that i would make here is that these do exist however they have been dangerous for folks for everyone that's not reported you know like abraham was saying there's about 175 that still happen per year they're not being reported out about how dangerous they are how you're basically talking about untreated medical conditions and there are folks who have undergone multiple exorcisms and have passed away and died as a result of these inadequate ineffective and not medically based treatments so I implore you, if you are in a situation where you feel that you are possessed or somebody that you care about is possessed, maybe go get a a psychiatric evaluation, go get a medical evaluation, go get some kind of medical expertise to look at what's going on to try to figure out what might be happening before you decide to hire an exorcist. And just to clarify, you mean that these do happen in the sense that exorcisms happen, not demonic possessions happen. Yes, 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 yes. So make sure that's very clear. Yes, there is no scientific evidence to support demonic possessions. Right. And I think that actually leads nicely into my one of my major take take home points, if not my only major take home point, which is that the idea of demonic possessions is better understood by using real world concepts and evidence that we have, which is to say that there are mental health issues to be addressed or there are other considerations, maybe physical ailments, whatever, what have you, that better explain what is going on when something looks like a demonic possession and that those are then better treated by using actual science-based medicine. Yep. Agreed. Cool. All right, sweet. Well, then I think that wraps it up. Time for recommendations? Yes, let's do it. Recommendations. So my recommendation this week is because it's spooky season. I always like fun horror movies and horror movies that are over the top. So if you ever get a chance to watch this movie, it is definitely worth it. It's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
2. Nice. Have you seen this one? I did. Did they do this as a remake as well? There are multiple sequels out there. There are multiple versions of this. And if you get into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre lore, it gets a little bit ridiculous. Like there is a sequel to the remake that happened in like 2003 or 2004 or something like that with Jessica Biel. Okay. However, I'm talking about the one that happened in the 80s. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about the very first sequel that really takes the family and the lore above and beyond. So they are um, in this movie. They are on the run uh, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one. The family is, and they kidnap a DJ host, and there are a lot of really great one-liners in it. There is a literal chainsaw fight. A sheriff goes to the store. Actually, um, Dennis Hopper is in it. Of course. Uh, he goes to a hardware store, and he purchases multiple chainsaws, and he gets holsters for those chainsaws like they are guns, and he tracks down this family, and he, sh- he chainsaw fights them. It is beyond absurd. But just a lot of fun, a lot of really creepy imagery. They have taken over like an abandoned amusement park. That's where their home base is now. It's just a lot of really good, fun. Uh, it's just fun. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. It starts off with them winning a chili cook-off. And then it just kind of kicks off there. Yeah, so it's it's a really great, fun movie. Way over the top. Super campy. And just a blast. So I would just say, just just enjoy yourself with it. It's been a while since I've seen these. I have a memory of the third one being like taking place because there was a, there was a third one too right there's like a texas chainsaw massacre three yeah oh yeah there's a third a fourth one yeah. there's like there's all kinds of crazy i have a memory of one of the later sequels where the, the the main i guess conflict occurs underground and i feel like it was maybe the third one that's the second one i think oh okay cool yeah the third one has vigo mortensen in it and the fourth one has matthew mcconaughey and renee zellweger and matthew mcconaughey has a robotic leg man i just need to sit down and watch these again Oh, yes, absolutely. Do yourself a favor. (laughs) All right. My recommendation today is, and this is particularly relevant going into (laughs) election season. Actually, so my first recommendation is go vote. And my second recommendation is whenever you hear somebody who is trying to communicate something to you, I think a lot of times people have the knee jerk reaction of you're wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to found account. I'm going to think of a counter argument to suggest why you're wrong. And you often want to just point out what someone is saying wrong about whatever they're saying. So they might say something and you go, oh yeah, but, or well, except for, and I know that I'm guilty of this for sure, but I would like to make the recommendation that you try and notice when you do those things and make the attempt to interpret what people are saying to you as charitably as you can, which is to say, rather than try and find every way to nitpick and contradict them, try and hear what they're saying and interpret it in a way that you understand what they're trying to say to you. Even if you don't agree with how it was delivered, even if you don't necessarily agree with the point, try and hear the message and not get distracted by the delivery of the message or trying to prove it wrong. And I think it'll just make it so much easier to have that any conversation really. And this is even like things that you might agree with people on is like you, you're talking about a topic. You're both on the same page, but the second somebody says something, you immediately want to contradict them or find a counterexample or prove them wrong or say it differently. And I get it. I do, I think. But my recommendation is to try and hear it as charitably as you can, interpret what they're meaning to say. And also, if they do that same thing for you, then it's going to feel a lot better when you're trying to have a conversation with them. And rather than feeling like you're just, you know, tires in the mud going nowhere, you actually can talk, you you can communicate with one another. I love that. I mean, I love the idea of just being able to have a conversation. You know, I mean, that was the whole reason why we put together that series on the political views. It's like to yeah. be able to like hear people and listen. So I, I love that recommendation. Thanks. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. And so if you uh, are enjoying these Halloween episodes, we've got one more for you. This has been fun. I'm looking forward. I've already started making a list for next year and I'm looking forward to that as well. So (laughs) Halloween spooky theme episodes will live on. It's going to be an (laughs) annual tradition. All right. Perfect. If you are an exorcist or you have been exercised or you have any information about exorcisms you would like to share with us, please feel free to reach out to us on any of the social media platforms. You can reach us at info at www.dwdpodcast.com. We love hearing from everybody. If you would like to support the show, you can leave us a rating and review whatever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't already, please subscribe. That'll make sure that you never miss one of our spooky themed episodes or one of our political themed episodes or one of our regular one of the mill super fascinating episodes so i think that that is all i got you anything else shane nope that's it all right thanks for listening this is abraham this is shane we are out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.